It's Monday, April 27th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The coronavirus pandemic has thrown American universities for a loop in trying to figure out how to reopen effectively and provide students with a learning experience on par with what they'll be paying for. On one hand, you have students unsure if they want to incur massive debt just to attend online classes. On the other hand, colleges are in danger due to lost revenue from athletics, room and board, and tuition. Erica Pandy, reporter at Axios, joins us for the tough decisions for both students and universities. Next, the economy continues to stall while businesses remain closed. 4.4 million Americans applied for jobless benefits, according to the latest numbers. The wave of layoffs the country is experiencing makes it very important to have a financial plan, even if you're still working. Chris Cornelis, contributor to the Wall Street Journal, joins us with tips if you've lost your job or fear you will. Finally, as states begin to reopen for business, many experts agree that a robust system of contact tracing must be implemented to keep the spread of the virus in check. To accomplish this, some estimates say that we could need up to 300,000 workers. These workers would need to interview those that have tested positive, identify those that they've come in contact with, and then try to convince those people to self-quarantine. Alice Miranda Olstein, healthcare reporter at Politico, joins us for more on contact tracing. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Colleges are very concerned right now. They don't have to make a decision yet, but you know, by mid-June, they're going to have to decide. There's multi-million dollar contracts with vendors for dorms, for dining halls that they need to work out. And right now, it's not clear that you know any college will be able to open in the fall. Joining us now is Erica Pandy, reporter for Axios. Thanks for joining us, Erica. Thanks so much. Wanted to talk about colleges. There's a lot of uncertainty with American universities right now, as there is just uncertainty with how states are going to be reopening back up. And there's a lot of questions in the air, especially for hundreds of thousands of high school graduates, currently enrolled college students, on what the new year is going to look like. Most colleges started in August. By this time, people already are starting to have plans. They're starting to make the plans to move into dorms, things like that. And everything's kind of put on hold. Universities don't know what they're going to be doing. And it just has big implications all over the place for everyone. Erica, tell us a little bit about what's going on. Colleges, to me, has been a really interesting part of all the coronavirus effect because it's kind of the first example of the longer term effects that this lockdown and this pandemic are going to have. I mean, fall online is going to affect freshmen entering now up until the four years from now when they graduate. And, And like you said, Colleges are very concerned right now. They don't have to make a decision yet, but, you know, by mid-June, they're going to have to decide. There's multi-million dollar contracts with vendors for dorms, for dining halls that they need to work out. And right now, it's not clear that, you know, any college will be able to open in the fall. And for a lot of college students that are deciding where they're going, that's a big part of it. I mean, I spoke to several college students for the story, and lots are telling me if it's going to be online classes in the fall, I'd rather just take the whole year off and, and go next year. Is it even worth it to pay for a style of learning that was not advertised? Students uh, are thinking they're going to go to college, have that college experience, learn one-on-one with professors, and it's just not the same on Zoom classes or or online classes. Absolutely. And and the interesting thing is this is all coming for colleges at the exact worst time. I mean, we've all seen it an ongoing debate for the past decade or so as tuition is rising and student debt is rising about is college even worth it? Has higher education gotten so expensive that it's not worth sinking into that much debt for it? And 
now students are staring down the possibility of paying as much for, you know, a fraction of the resources. So it's definitely going to accelerate that debate. You know, some colleges have said BU, for example, floated the idea of potentially delaying until January, and some bigger colleges can do that. But most universities in the U.S. are going to need to have some kind of fall semester that they charge for to even stay open. So it's a huge question that college presidents all over the country are staring at the ceiling about right now. Diane Klein, a law professor at the University of Laverne in California, she actually said that some students should take a year off and start in 2021 if they can because of all these things. You know, the expense. People don't want to go into debt over paying for school, especially when it's not, you know, what they're were originally buying in for. That's crazy to hear that from a law professor saying, hey, take a year off. That's been one of the most striking things for me in reporting the story is just the sheer number of professors and forums and on Facebook groups saying, you know, I, you know, my my living depends on this, but I'm telling you that it, as, a, as a student, you shouldn't do this. And, and, and you know, this is really, it, it points to an issue of how higher education is financed in this country. But, you know, the point that college, uh, I mean, college freshmen and, and sophomores and, and juniors shouldn't be hurling themselves into kind of a, an incomplete education experience just to prop an institution up. And I think that's the kind of point that these professors are making when they say, just stay home, don't even bother, wait till next year. Let's talk a little bit about the colleges and universities themselves. They're losing a ton of revenue from not having sports, from not having people pay tuition, room and board, all that stuff. They're losing money there. State universities, there's not a lot of money coming in from the government right now. And a lot of colleges have already had a lot of people furloughed. They're doing hiring freezes. So even their staff is limited. The eye-popping number for everyone was when the University of Michigan predicted it was going to lose a billion dollars due to the pandemic. And I think we're just scratching the surface there. I mean, all colleges are going to lose money. You see even the big ones with massive endowments announcing hiring freezes. For colleges now, they're going to have to have some kind of a fall semester. The likeliest thing is going to be something online. And it's going to be up to them to figure out how to entice students to take part in that experience. It goes beyond that, too, because anecdotally, I just hear there's not as much enthusiasm when people are taking online classes. So is that learning experience going to be the same? Are the students going to get as much out of it in that setting? Absolutely. I mean, a lot of kids are trying to make that decision right now and just don't have the resources they need because colleges want to wait as long as they can. And and your point about online learning is, is a great one. I mean, if you think about it, this had to happen overnight for K-12 and for college where everyone just got sent home and professors who maybe were used to not even really checking email that often had to suddenly start using all of these new uh, online learning tools. And colleges are going to have to, this is a longer term thing, they're going to have to put their faculty through extensive trainings to make that online education effective. And you haven't seen many colleges move on that either. And that needs to happen this summer as well. Erica Pandy, reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I think as we begin to reopen the economy in May and June, you're going to see the economy really bounce back in July, August, September. And we are putting in an unprecedented amount of fiscal relief into the economy. You're seeing trillions of dollars that's making its way into the economy. And I think this is going to have a significant impact. Joining us now is Chris Cornelis, contributor to The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me. We're constantly monitoring what's going on with the economy and unfortunately, It's not good. We're in this historic labor market decline right now, triggered by the coronavirus pandemic. This past week, about 4.4 million Americans applied for jobless claims. 
this has led us to about 26 million unemployment insurance claims in the past five weeks. It is getting really bad out there. And we wanted to bring you on to talk about some of the financial moves we can make if you might have lost your job or if you will. They said that some of these job losses have kind of subsided for now, but more can still be on the way depending on how long the economy is shut down the way it is. So Chris, tell us a little bit about what people can do to help put themselves in the best position. I was talking last week to a number of financial planners about specifically what people can do if they've lost their job. And it's things like taking a hard look at your budget and learning perhaps for the first time how much it is that you need to live on every month. And when I was talking about the moves people should make if they are laid off, what all of them were telling me was, these are the things people should just be doing anyways, especially if they think that they could be laid off. So the first thing is surveying spending and really getting an idea for what sort of things you're spending that could go. And if you haven't been laid off yet, this is a good time to look into a home equity loan or maybe applying or accepting a zero interest credit card or consolidating debt with a lower interest rate. When you don't have a job, it's a lot harder to qualify for those sorts of things. So people are saying, if you've lost your job and you do have a home equity line of credit and you're running short on cash, that could be a good thing to tap. If you still have a job, this might be a good time to look into doing things like that. Another one of the tips that you were covering is pause college savings. You always want to put your kids in the best position, but a lot of colleges are even in danger of reopening or they're doing a lot of online classes. People are going to want to take gap years because of all this that's going on. So that's another big one. Maybe people should be pausing their college savings for their children anyway. I mean, this couple of advisors I talked to said people frequently prioritize the college savings over their own retirement or their own emergency fund. And most of the financial advisors I talked to suggest having at least six months of expenses liquid. And really, a lot of them are recommending 12 months. Whether you have a job or not, if you don't have 12 months of expenses saved in an emergency fund, you need to stop funding your kids' college because things are going to happen. Another interesting one that you covered here is stop paying your mortgage. I mean, now a lot of people, you hear something like that and it probably immediately strikes fear in their hearts, but it could take a little while before any ball gets moving where they would kick you out of your house. This is one that my family has been dealing with. There's a home next to us is finally on the market after the previous owners stopped paying their mortgage. I mean, two years ago, and it was actually a really sad situation. But the point is, people are running out of money. And if you're looking for a place to not pay, advisors were telling me is, it's important to know that if you own your home and you've run out of all of your options, not paying your mortgage doesn't mean you're not going to have a place to live in the near term. You're going to be in your home for quite a while. But the first thing to do if you feel like you're at risk of not being able to make your mortgage is call your lender, explain what's going on, and see if there's something they can do to work with you. Understand the terms of what's being offered because some people are looking at lump sum payments come due later and just you know see what the options are. But being proactive and talking to your lender is going to help. But again, they're not recommending that you stop paying your mortgage but they are saying if you have to miss a payment on something, they want you to know missing a mortgage payment doesn't mean you're going to become homeless. Insurance is a huge one. Health insurance, auto insurance. What should people be doing with regards to that? 
I mean, this is another interesting one where I was listening to this and I thought I should just be doing this anyways. And what they're saying is, look, if you're at home, if you're not driving, maybe you don't need the same level of deductible that you did before. Maybe you don't need the same kind of car insurance you did before. If you're insuring two cars, but your family's only using one right now, maybe you can reduce your monthly payment by calling your insurance company and saying, here's our situation. What are our options? And of course, health insurance is extremely important. And what these financial planners were telling me is if you lose your job or your hours are reduced or your insurance is affected, check out the exchange you can call the local health authority and find out what opportunities are available for you. And as they were telling me, the adults, the parents might not qualify, but there are times when children will qualify for the essentially Medicaid option in states, even if the parents don't. And that could be a big money saving too. If you need to go on COBRA or if you're purchasing a plan on the exchange, it's possible that your whole family would be eligible for Medicaid. It's also possible that you would only need to buy a policy for two of you and your children would be eligible for another government option. Chris, Cornelis, contributor to the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. If you think about the thousands of people that will test positive, you need to think about the number of people that you will then, they will have come into contact with, and all of those people need to be contacted. So it's a major undertaking, and we're just spinning that up now. Joining us now is Alice Miranda Olstein healthcare reporter at Politico. Thanks for joining us, Alice. Absolutely. Wanted to talk about contact tracing and the context of getting everybody back to work. Everybody's pretty much decided that this is one of the things that we have to do. You obviously ramp up testing, but contact tracing is identifying those people that have tested positive for COVID-19 and then also identifying people that they have come in contact with so that everybody knows that they need to self-quarantine and let everything go by. But what we're hearing right now is that the workforce needed to accomplish all this is very high. We might need up to 300,000 workers to do this, and we're nowhere close to even being able to get to this. Alice, tell us a little bit more about this. So the public health workforce that already existed in the U.S. doing this work for anything from STDs to measles, chickenpox, disease outbreaks. So we had people doing this work, but we had fewer than 2,000 of them. Now, during this pandemic, we may need hundreds of thousands. And without federal guidance on what states should do to beef up that workforce, states are just making decisions on their own on how many people to hire, who to hire, how much training to give them. So in our article, we talked to a bunch of different states and sort of showed that this patchwork system with states racing to try to find enough people to do this work is going on. And it's a key piece of any attempt to go back to reopening the country. You can't send people back to work if you don't know who has the virus and who they've been around. There's an organization, it's called the National Association of State and Territorial Organization. They estimate that we need at least 100,000 Others say we could go up to that 300,000, but 100,000 of these disease intervention specialists could cost $3.6 billion. And we know that states are strapped for cash right now because they're not getting the tax revenue that they're used to getting. And the bill that is coming together in Congress, the next package of aid, includes money specifically for testing, but no money specifically for contact tracing. So not only are states having to make all these decisions on their own on who to hire, how many to hire, 
what training to give them, what guidance to give them. They're also having to fund it themselves. And these are public health departments that have seen their funding slash deeply over the last decade. Let's talk about some of the states that you made contact with. Arkansas was an interesting one. They never did any of the stay-at-home orders, but they did beef up this area, their contact tracers. They went from three to 150, and I think they were mostly focusing on nursing homes and prisons, but Arkansas as a state, they have under 2,000 cases of COVID-19 right now, so maybe something that they had been doing right all along. Both individual states in the U.S. and other countries have said that contact tracing is a key part of keeping the infection rate low, and you've seen countries like New Zealand and Singapore and Taiwan really use this as a major tool. In the U.S., it's just now ramping up. So these disease investigators usually work in these public health departments. A lot of times they usually get at least a year's worth of training and mentorship, and they're expediting these things really fast. Vermont was an interesting case. 90 minutes of training, three days of shadowing, and then one more 90-minute session, and then they're hoping that people are adept enough to be able to do this. And there are states we've talked to who are giving a lot less training than that. So, yes, we're living in an emergency and we don't have the luxury of giving people months and months or a year of training. We have to get them ready to go now. So, as you said, it's not that people have to have a particular degree or even a healthcare background. People can be trained to do this work. But it is challenging. It really takes a lot of diplomacy and people skills. You have to cold call people who have tested positive and get them to trust you enough to reveal their movements over several days. And this can feel really invasive to a lot of people. And there's a lot of concern that, one, people will just not answer the phone at all. You know, you see an unknown number. A lot of people just won't answer it. But even if they do, when they hear someone on the other line, saying, you know, I need you to tell me everywhere you've been for five days, that could be really tough for people and they might be really resistant. And so something we didn't have the room to get into in the piece, but I think is really important. Public health experts say that governors and other state leaders need to start educating the public now that this is going to be going on and sort of priming them for it and saying, look, you might be getting these calls and we really need you to cooperate. It's important for the health of the whole state. The last question I have is, What about technology-assisted contact tracing? So both states and other countries abroad have turned to different apps and technologies to try to help the human staff doing the contact tracing work, either apps on your phone that document your movements but don't reveal any personal information about you, and that can allow you to receive an alert if you've been in the same area as someone who tested positive. But there are a lot of concerns, not just about privacy. So even if the apps are opt-in, what happens to the data? How is it stored? How is it used and shared later? That really concerns people. And you already have groups like the ACLU raising these concerns. But also, not everyone has a smartphone. And so there are also fears that efforts that lean too much on this technology will leave out a lot of the low income, largely people of color who may not have this technology, who are already more at risk for the virus and these efforts won't reach them. Alice Miranda Olstein, healthcare reporter at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Sure, anytime. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, 
and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>